Welcome to the 448th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome and thanks for listening. I guess we're officially in rainy season here down in Florida, so um, grass is starting to green up. Um, Humidities, we have a couple days that we have some nicer days, but for the most part, we're still running in uh, high humidity, especially as the long runs go. I am closing in on the Dana 100K race in Texas. And that's the second week of October. So hit the peak mileage week and now we're backing off. So that's nice. Um, actually get to go to Cold Creek State Park this Saturday to do a practice run for the long haul 100 mile race that occurs in January. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that park in the loop. It's a 16.9 mile loop uh, in just a little bit north of Lakeland, Florida, which is kind of center of the state, a little bit north, a couple hours from where I live. Um, so it's pretty exciting to go run on trails in Florida. It's going to be flat. I guess there's a couple little inclines, but uh, nevertheless, uh, mileage is mileage and uh, trail is trail as far as different surfaces. It's supposed to be a pretty flat, easy trail, not a lot of roots. So uh, again, I'll let you know how that goes. Um, and then in between all those things, we have a 50K run back in um, uh, in November, the first week, back in Texas, up towards hill country, so there'll be a little bit more rocks and roots at that point. So just like everything else in life, um, I've had a few niggles, uh, a little low back uh, irritation, which is kind of new because it's on the left side. You say my issues are on the right side, or they were on the right side before the race in uh, July. Um, working with the back program, got things pretty pretty much under control, but an interesting thing happened. So I usually do my, uh, and I've been talking about doing my um, VO2 max um, interval sessions on Wednesday. So three minutes on, three minutes off at 11% or a 6% grade at about a 11, 19 pace. So not that fast of running, but a pretty good incline. So I'm huffing and puffing and I get into my lactic threshold heart rate zone. So I, do, I did seven of those and um, felt really good afterwards. And Thursday started to have a little bit more irritation in my back. And Friday, it would be bad. And then I would rest it and do a bunch of mobility work and planks and you know everything I could think of to throw at it and wake up Saturday morning and I'm better again. And so I'm able to do my long runs. So happened the first time. I did my long run of 20 and then a 10 mile afterwards. This past weekend, similar thing happened. You know, Thursday started feeling a little bit rough. Friday didn't feel like running much at all. Did I, you know, I could, I could go back on the incline like I did before. So I could put the incline up on my treadmill of 15 and walk as fast as I wanted to walk with zero discomfort. But running on the flat was um, uncomfortable. And then on Saturday morning, um, cured again, ran 15 miles on Saturday, 10 miles on Sunday, on my feet, did yard work, everything, uh, feeling great. So um, what's the problem? Is it that my mileage is high and um, I threw in the speed work because that's got me before, but it really wasn't speed work and it's incline work and I feel pretty good afterwards. Well, it turns out uh, my new dog, Threo, has something to do with it. And when I look at 
So when I get on the treadmill and I put a grade up, it kind of throws, it takes my pelvis and tilts it more posterior and the pain goes away. When 3.0 gets excited when he sees a dog and pulls me forward, it pulls my pelvis forward. So tight muscles and a little pulling from 3.0 uh, and I get, um, you know, back into a, you know, uh, it's kind of a scary situation for me because I've, you know, put my back out to the point where it's taken me a while to get back. And certainly I don't want to have to take any time off given the race schedule that's coming up. So I decided to do some remedial work with 3.0 in the meantime. And so we've uh, abandoned running. I've been abandoned running with him. We have gone back to just a training walk close to home without much distraction till we get him down um, to, uh, you know, a nice, until I get him down so I can communicate with him well, even in the presence of other dogs that are starting to go goofy. You know, when I take Sophie running, and so Sophie runs with me about three or four miles, and she, she, I can say, you know, watch me, leave it, stay, you know, and she's perfectly fine. She ignores the other dog, stays right at the heel. We don't have any problems. Um, but three is not quite there yet, and so when he pulls me forward, you know, it creates an issue. You hate to be one of those dog parents, you know, that has their dog jerking them down the road. And um, so, you know, I've watched a lot of training videos, gone back over what I've known to do before. Since I'm starting with him a little older and he probably has some bad habits in him, you know, it's a little bit more difficult than having a puppy to, you know, with when I had Sophie as a puppy, she, I, I just put a treat at my side and I would walk and you know, she, she wanted the treat, so she followed me, and we had a very good communication from the get-go. 3.0 and I are having to develop a good uh, a communication in the house. He's my buddy. follows me everywhere we go. We have a good communication. But again, he's distracted easily if there's something going on outside. So we've been working on that, and I'm pleased to say that actually we just came back from our second walk today, and he did quite well um, as far as walking, healing, stopping, sitting, and all those kind of things. So We'll gradually move our way back up, and I think he'll be a great dog to, to run with. Uh, it just takes him a while since he's so large that I can't have him, you know, pulling my back out of place or pulling me down. So that's where we are as far as that goes. So um, I think, you know, I, at first I got a little bit concerned that, oh, man, every time I try to increase my mileage and do, do a little bit of lactate threshold work, I end up getting myself hurt and I'm going to have to back down. But I think, um, you know, just watching my body position, whether it's walking 3-0 or running, is, is very important. So if you suffer from hip or low back or sciatica, you know, look to see your body position, your pelvic position. We do a lot of that in our mobility class um, where we assess people's posture and help them kind of get more aligned. So, um, you know, our let our glutes and our abs take the brunt of work instead of our low back. Uh, since we, a lot of people sit a lot uh, during the day, uh, we drive, we sit, um, and everything gets shortened up, and we end up using, you know, losing um, strength in our glutes if we ever had it, and strength in our abs if we ever had it, and our low back takes it. So um, most low back pain can be very easily corrected if you pay attention to a few simple things. And unfortunately, there's a lot of low back surgeries done because people are in legitimate pain, 
and they don't know how to get out of it and they become impatient and they want a quick fix and they get a surgery. And even more scary is people, you know, are given pain medicines and muscle relaxers and, and that has nothing to do with the etiology of the discomfort. It's usually a muscle imbalance. Even if there's scoliosis, that can be, you know, a muscle imbalance uh, to some degree. Um, you know, trauma, there's lots of people out there that have had significant back trauma that go on to do heavy lifting and running and everything. So even if you've had trauma in the past with your back, uh, or had a disc or had something, it doesn't mean that, you know, you're one of those people that can't ever do anything because you have a bad back. It's, it's how do you get the rest of your body to help you, uh, not be so dependent on your low back. And, um, so I think it's it's you know it's it's real important to to look into those things. On that same note, uh, there was a very interesting article that was uh, just published, and it looks at muscle strength. This article was uh, published in Lifestyle Medicine. Strength and multiple types of physical activity predict cognitive function independent of low muscle mass in the. N. Haynes group, and that was a large group that's been people been followed from 1999 to 2002. So they went back and they looked at uh, data from 1,424 adults, 60 years of age, uh, from 1990 and 2000 editions to the 2001 and 2002 editions of the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And what they found was that it is muscle strength that predicts cognitive ability or cognitive function more so than muscle mass. And, you know, if you think about it, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm not saying he has cognitive dysfunction, um, but if you have a large muscle mass, it doesn't necessarily protect you as good as being um, Jack LaLanne and being very strong. So think somebody that can do all kinds of acrobats and calisthenics um, actually do better in the long term from a cognitive functional capacity than people that were very um, muscular. And when they looked at it um, a little closer, what they saw was that people that tend to have a large muscle mass tended to have a lot of more visceral fat, which also goes along with more metabolic dysfunction in adult-onset diabetes and elevated hemoglobin A1Cs as they get older. So, you know, it's kind of back to that cattle-raising theory that, you know, the grass-fed cows, or you might say the deer, do better than the, the corn-fed um, big cows, um, as far as, uh, you know, uh, because of the marbling in the, in the muscle, the fat in, in human muscle, um, causes metabolic dysfunction. So I thought that that was, is very interesting and, and, you know, kind of went on to say that, um, you know, even loss of muscle mass doesn't have as much to do with loss of brain function as loss of strength does. So it is very important for us to maintain our strength and, it's, and the good news is that at any age, you can become stronger. So you may not put on, you know, you might not look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, back throwing Arnold under the bus again, but if you're strong with the muscle that you have and it's lean muscle, 
it's going to do you a whole lot of good. So, you know, it goes back to, you know, lifting heavy things, but body weight exercises and mobility, weight training of any kind uh, is going to do uh, one good. And we don't need to worry about as far as men go, taking testosterone or taking growth hormones to get more muscle mass. Because again, you don't put on, you don't become stronger with in the same proportion with muscle mass um, as you would if you're doing, uh, your muscle is increasing, your strength is increasing. So I thought that was, that was really very interesting. Um, it also ties into, um, you know, what we do with people that are in the post-operative state. So whether they've had an abdominal surgery or they've had a, you know, some sort of cardiac surgery, or maybe people have just been sick and lost weight and they come to us to help them but they want to be plant-based and everybody, you know, or they have, maybe somebody has a parent that was sick and they lost a bunch of weight and they've lost muscle mass, so to speak. Uh, they've lost strength actually and muscle mass. Uh, and they want to get that back. Maybe you've broken a hip and you've lost muscle mass or people tell me they've lost weight and they grab their arms and say, look, I'm flabby. I've lost all this muscle mass. Um, but the reality of it is if we, and everybody worries about obviously then getting enough protein and they think they need to take protein drinks or eat some sort of, you know, better protein than what they're getting in, in standard plant-based nutrition. But what often happens is people end up trying to put on weight and they do that at the expense of adding more fat in their macronutrient ratio. So if you think about it, uh, a great plant-based diet that no added oil and you're making things from scratch is about 10 to 15% protein. And if you want to put on some, you know, you want to increase your weight and hopefully you want to increase your weight by increasing the muscle, you don't want to increase your fat mass, then if you just eat more calories with the same proportion of 10 to 15% protein, you're going to do just fine. On the other hand, if you say, okay, well, I'm going to throw a lot more nut butters in, um, to my, into the mix, or I'm going to put, you know, nuts in, or I'm going to eat more plant-based cheese or more junk food that has added oils or bars that have soybean oil, cash, you know, all different kinds of oils in them that have, you know, say they're seven or 8% fats, which turns out to be about 40% of the calories from fat, then you start and you run the risk of starting to put on more fat mass. So you become heavier, but you're not becoming, you're not becoming stronger. And that fat mass is ultimately not going to help you in the long term. And especially if you go back to the other article, it's not going to help you with your cognition. So the idea, and so an example would be if you were somebody that was sick and you were eating, um, you know, let's say you were eating 1,500 calories when you were sick and it's 10% protein, then that would be 150 calories from that 1,500 would be from protein. And if you divide that by four, that's 37 and a half grams of protein. So that's on the lowest side, even for a woman. 
But how about if you bulk that up to 2,000 calories a day? And again, keeping it at 10%, that's 200 calories. And divide that by four, now you have 50 grams of protein. And I didn't change my macronutrient ratio at all. Now, if someone can't swallow the food for some reason, um, they're having, you know, GI distress or some other problem, then, you know, we start to look at ways to do liquid calories to get more protein into people. Um, an easy way to do that is to blend up oats in a, pro in a drink, you know, in a smoothie. And that will get people more um, calories without adding more fat calories. It's going to keep your macronutrients together. So, those are kind of the things that we aim for. Um, people are quick to, to grab for the nut butters, which also contain, you know, a lot of omega-6s, which are inflammatory, uh, tend to contain saturated fats that can be used to make, to, to make cholesterol. So those are things that we don't want people to do. And again, processed foods, bars, and things of that nature typically have a higher uh, portion of fat in them than you would like. People are fooled because they look at a package and they say, oh, at the bar is 200 calories and it's seven, only seven or say it's only five or six, say it's only 6% fat. We have 6%, six times nine calories per gram in fat. So six times nine is 54. So 54 out of that 200 calories would be fat more than your 10 to 15% that you're looking for. So that's just something on the side there um, as far as uh, your muscle mass. So bottom line, um, eat a plant-based diet, 10 to 15% protein, and do strength training if you want to keep your noggin working good. Back in 1987, when I was in medical school, there was a new class of blood pressure medicine coming out called calcium channel blockers. And the it was the first new class of blood pressure medicines that had come out in quite some time. And they came out with one called Diltizem and one called Nifedipine uh, and one called Verapamil. And these calcium channel blockers worked at a cellular level to ultimately cause the blood vessels to dilate and blood pressure lowered. Some of the medication, diltiazem, for example, also worked a little bit on the electrical system of the heart, would actually slow the heart rate down. But the other ones were just potent lower blood pressure lowering medications that worked quite effectively with fairly limited side effects. The biggest side effects were constipation. And of course, as a physician, nobody cares if somebody's constipated, just take a laxative. That's the age-old answer, right? Because everybody's constipated that eats a standard American diet, so just take a little bit more laxative. Um, occasionally, people got a rash. Um, seen some pretty good rashes over the years. Um, and then people would get swelling in their ankles because the blood vessels dilated, become, um, you know, enlarged, and gravity uh, would cause the veins to leak fluid, and so if the dose was high enough, um, then and the people were eating obviously a salty diet that nobody told them not to, um, they'd start to have swelling in their ankles, and and that could end up being a pretty good problem. Or again, the next step would be to give them a water pill to try to suck the fluid out of their ankles, which never really worked that well. So those those were the main class of, of drugs, and then um, there was a you know again we talked about water pills. There are water pills that affect the sodium potassium 
um, in the kidney, and there's um, again there's a, a hormonal system in the kidneys uh, called the renin-angiotensin uh, system, and it's basically a set of hormones that nephrologists think the kidneys are smarter than the heart or the brain, but they open these, uh, they send out these hormones to retain salt and water, and so there have been some drugs over the years that have been um, developed in various aspects or various functions in the kidney to um, decrease salt retention. And um, some of the side effects of these were um, painful, tender breasts, even in men, uh, menstrual regularities, and uh, potassium. Uh, People couldn't get rid of potassium good enough, so if they had any kind of kidney disease, uh, which again, a lot of people with hypertension do, or any kind of other problem that would cause them to retain potassium, Uh, they could get into trouble with rhythm problems. So um, that particular class of drugs wasn't used all that much, just in a kind of a limited arena of people. And then there was another class developed called an angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor and an angiotensin receptor blocker. Again, these medications worked at the level of the kidney to alter sodium and potassium and blood flow to the kidneys, ultimately resulting in a blood pressure drop of about 5 to 15 millimeters of mercury. So if your blood pressure is 170 and you drop 5 to 15 millimeters of mercury, that doesn't get you where you're going to 120. So often people are on two, three of these medications and, you know, then a diuretic, uh, again, to cause people to lose more water, um, and, you know, to deflate the system, so to speak, to get people's blood pressure down. But again, you can imagine that over the years, because we're not dealing with the mechanism that actually causes hypertension, we're just altering some of the hormones in the body, that the disease continued to progress and the blood pressure medicines, you know, started not to work as well. And people would assume, uh, and maybe they were told in a lot of instances, that, you know, with the medicine, you know, it just doesn't work as well over time. It's almost like its expiration date um, came, uh, or your body doesn't respond to it as well as it did. The reality of it is your body's not responding to it because the disease is progressing and it's not potent enough to deal with the problems that you're getting as your blood pressure and the causes of your blood pressure being elevated get worse over the years. So more meds are thrown at people, more combinations are thrown at people, side of, you know, and, and, you know, we start to see the side effects of some of these medications add on to the side effects when things, things are combined, and then side effects that we didn't think that don't even have to do with the vasculature system start to occur, and, you know, again, um, over time, people get pretty good at trying to titrate these to minimize the side effect uh, in, in people. The reality of it is, I think the number is something like 20% of people never fill the prescription after they're given the initial samples. Um, so nobody knows what people are actually taking. And if you're on six or seven or eight different medications, it's easy to screw it up anyway. So, um, you know, it's hard to tell. Again, most physicians, you know, they say, don't add salt to your food. Well, I think the years of the days of the salt shaker, not that many people, um, um, use a lot of table salt, but it's in the food. It's in soy sauce. It's in the sauces that people get. It's in the prepared foods. Um, a lot of those different things. So go out to dinner. Again, we've talked about it. People can get, you know, 10, 15 grams of sodium a day. 
when we really want people to get no more than 1,500 milligrams of salt a day. Um, a tablespoon of soy sauce is 700 to 800 milligrams of sodium. So you're almost there. If you just ate fruits and vegetables, it's only seven to 800 milligrams of sodium. So just eating raw fruits and vegetables, you get all the salt you need. You don't need any extra. But nevertheless, we don't tell people anything about that. Um, if you eat out, it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, one of our patients even, you know, it's like, I didn't realize cheese had so much salt. You know, you think, well, Dr. Delaney's plant-based people are eating cheese. Well, some of them are. Um, you know, they just are in various stages of believing uh, that dairy is not good for you for a variety of reasons. Um, and cheese is very, very high in salt. Feta cheese is the highest in sodium. Baked cheeses are very high in salt and oil. So um, if you're eating store-bought products, um, you know, very high in sodium. It's a preservative. It gives things flavor. Um, you know, so people get into a whole lot, lot of, of salt. The other thing that happens, even though the classes of drugs haven't really changed that much over the years, the pharmaceutical industry will kind of, you know, change the recipe a little bit and come up with a new medication. And then they come to the doctor's office with the samples or the cards to get so much money off on a, you know, a prescription. Maybe they'll even give you uh, no copay for a year if you have commercial insurance. And so, you know, they get people on a new fangled ACE inhibitor, a new fangled ARB or new fangled, you know, whatever. Um, that's much more expensive, but you don't have to worry about it, at least for a while, because they're giving you a card, you know, get out of jail card free that you don't have to pay the copay. So your insurance picks up the rest until you either fall in the donut hole or the, you know, the, the card's up and you start having to pay for it. And by that time, if it's working, you're afraid not to come off of it uh, or your doctor says you can't come off of it. So you're on a newfangled medication unless you're lucky enough to have some side effects that get you back on something else. Um, and the doctor or the pharmaceutical reps come into the office and they, you know, give lunches and they tell people all about why theirs is, is so much better. And where I'm going with this is that there is a new drug in town, um, this um, aldosterone uh, sodium type um, inhibitor that works at the level of the kidney, and it's called Lorundostat. And you know, it's uh, the next great greatest claim because it works a little bit further upstream. So, um, hoping to bypass any of the other side effects of the other one, the gynecomastia and the menstrual difficulties and the other other problems. So they did a study looking at, you know, um, they're, they're on the phase three study looking at dosages, well, phase two uh, versus placebo and, you know, uh, and people that need three other medications to control their blood pressure. And kind of what they found was that you know, they can get someplace between 4 and 14 millimeters of mercury drop in the blood pressure if they add this drug onto the rest of the drugs versus not adding anything onto the drugs. Side effect of retaining potassium is still there. Um, there's also, um, you know, when they looked at adverse events in a small study, about 200 participants, about 55% had some sort of adverse events, um, including a decrease in kidney function, increase in potassium, uh, dangerously low sodium levels, perhaps worsening coronary artery disease, um, kicking up of a cancer, nobody knew why. Um, but 
so yeah it works dropping the blood pressure um and the dosage seems to be you know pretty much honed in uh, but you know, again, if you got, can't get your blood pressure control with adding on three or four medications, we can add this, you know, and it has some side effects, but you know, it's better than having high blood pressure. But what they did notice that people were overweight had significantly more, they were significantly more sodium, reta- they, uh, retained sodium a whole lot worse. Um, and they noted that, but nobody really addressed it. Um, and they still had the gynecomastia and the menstrual disorders. But, you know, what, what bothered me is if, if salt is such a factor, and they, clearly sodium is a factor as far as driving blood pressure. We decrease the body's ability to retain sodium and the blood pressure drops. Well, why don't we decrease the intake of sodium um, and get these people metabolically um, in tune? Uh, again, you know, there's a lot of factors that are being uh, made by... Uh, adipose or fat cells that cause all kinds of inflammation and vascular changes and, and thickening of the arteries and growth factors and diabetes and all this other kind of thing. So why don't we address the problem as opposed to put a Band-Aid on people that, that make things worse? Um, and, um, you know, we, it's, there's, it's so brazen that, you know, even people that are on TV that, you know, you can see they're eating what they want, they're enjoying life, you don't have to change a darn thing, you just take this medication. Of course, nobody listens to, I guess, the, you know, the paragraphs of side effects at the bottom of the advertisement, uh, you know, why anybody would ever want to take some of these things kind of all comes down to who brought what kind of lunch into the primary care's office and the nurse practitioners and the PAs are going to dispense this stuff so the doctor doesn't have to see the patient and they get an attaboy on the back because they control the blood pressure at the expense of all these side effects because nobody ever really asks or tells them so eventually the patient may not take the drug or it's not taking you know half the drugs or in some other crazy order and um you know, the disease continues to progress. The darling drugs of weight loss, uh, Ozempic and Wegovy uh, and such, uh, just got a slap on the hand this week by the FDA, uh, putting a warning label on them that in, uh, intestinal blockage can occur, which can be lethal. Um, Interestingly uh, and deceitfully, these two drugs are made by the same manufacturer. So they just slap different names on the same drug or the very similar drug. Um, and they work by decreasing the motility of the gastrointestinal tract. So the claim to fame is they decrease gastric, they decrease stomach emptying, you feel full, you eat less, you lose weight. The problem is the mechanism by doing this is a neuropathy that is not going to just affect one organ or one piece of the intestinal tract, but it infects the whole intestinal tract. So not only is there gastric motility issues, but it, now it appears to be that the whole intestine slows down. Um, there was already a warning about increased depression and risk of suicide because, again, it acts on, on, essentially. But if we look at the mechanism, it's kind of crazy to think, and what doctor wouldn't think or ignore or choose to ignore, 
that if you decrease gastric emptying, it's the same side effect that occurs in long-term diabetes when, it, when the diabetes um, destroys the autonomic nervous system to the point where the stomach won't empty and people then ultimately lose weight, but it's at the expense of neuropathy, both in their legs and their intestinal tract or in their, all of their autonomic nervous system. So now this medication does. So not only can you have intestinal blockages because everything lays in your intestines and your stomach, but just think about the microbiome that nobody's even mentioning at this point. You have decaying material because, God forbid, you change what you eat um, when you have one of these conditions, so whether you're obese or overweight. So you're going to eat the same type of food, and you're going to have select for a gut microbiome that's unhealthy to start with and now it's going to be overrun by material just laying there causing more and more inflammation more and more immune dysfunction more and more pressure in the intestine you know to the point where people become you know have megacolon or can't go to the bathroom at all or end up with diverticular disease or even colostomies at the expense of taking a medication so that they won't be hungry so that they can ultimately lose weight. The only people that are getting free lunches are the healthcare workers and doctors. Um, ironically, they're getting fed food that is uh, local takeout, which um, probably requires them to need those medications as well. I go back to the point, if you're a doctor or your nurse, um, appears unhealthy and their body mass index appears abnormal, then there's something wrong and they can't take care of their own health and you should question them for that. Rounding out back to my VO2 max training, I've said it before in the podcast, I really don't necessarily like uh, pushing myself to have to breathe hard during my morning runs. I kind of like to go out and watch the sun come up and run and think about things for the podcast and solve the world's problems and be with my dogs. Um, But I know that what I'm training for is going to push my body to limits that I've never pushed it for at the age that I am. And so I need to do these training things that cause me to be uncomfortable. So I've committed to doing uh, the interval training and that'll be followed by tempo runs. This week I kind of got out of... um, order so to speak but I was out on a run and I was uh, somewhat time restrained so I started pushing the pace and it's like well while I'm out here I might as well do what's called a tempo run and a tempo run is a kind of lactate threshold run so I'm accomplishing the same thing but in a different kind of way so I have been going three minutes hard uphill faster and then I run very easy for three minutes letting my heart rate come back down lactate threshold basically in you know cardiovascular terms you're starting to produce more acid more lactate than your body can actually utilize and so acid starts to build up in your system and your muscles start to fatigue Um, and typically that occurs when your heart rate gets over 85 to 90 percent of your predicted maximum heart rate so there's ways to go about finding that, um, and if you have you know run very long, uh, you know you can you can figure it out. Um, there's a couple different ways you can tell where that is. Um, all of a sudden, you can't really talk in full sentences. Um, you know, it's it's a strain that when you're in that that um, heart rate zone that you you know you're not going to stay there forever. 
uh, your body's going to have to slow down. So when I do a tempo run, that is a longer ep- effort, but not as fast or not um, as driving my heart rate as high, um, but for longer periods of time. So you end up kind of the creep effect, of creep up heart rate, creep up work. So I did, um, for instance, 20 minutes of increased pace, and I did 10 minutes, and then I recovered for five minutes, and then I did... Um, 10 minutes of increased pace and I recovered for five minutes and I did five minutes of increased pace and then recovered for five minutes and then just, you know, did a cool down, so to speak. And that was after a warm up run of sorts. So my heart rate would not come all the way down and, but then I'd take it back up. So I had a sustained increase in heart rate. Uh, and then by doing that, basically your body's allowing you, um, or you're, you're basically training yourself to be uncomfortable. You're training yourself to tolerate an increased heart rate, uh, increased lactic acid production. You're also training your muscles to utilize that acid so that eventually you run faster at a lower heart rate is the ultimate goal. Bottom line is you're uncomfortable. Um, you know, it's a pace that's, you know, if you run five or you know, five Ks, 10 Ks, it's a pace that you don't want to maintain probably more than an hour, so to speak. Um, so you're glad for the rest part. Um, you're thinking about it while you're doing. It's not, you're just not uh, lollygagging around. Um, so I did that run. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a long tempo interval. And so then today I did a shorter VO2 max day because I also had some time restraints as well. Um, so I did kind of a combo this week. So I did one day of intervals, one day of a tempo run to try to accomplish a similar thing. Both days I was uncomfortable, but in different ways. And that's a lot like changing your nutrition. You've got to learn to be a little uncomfortable. The diet industry would like to tell you that you can eat what you want and you can graze all day and you can have these delicious protein drinks and uh, eat bacon and you'll still lose weight and you never have to be uncomfortable and it's all a big fat lie. Um, just doesn't work that way. Um, you have to learn to be a little bit uncomfortable at first until your body resets and realizes it's no big deal not to eat between meals. It's no big, not a big deal to not have, you know, bacon or donuts or something along those lines. When you're trying to accomplish a goal and you keep that goal in mind, you're a little uncomfortable at first. You're much more uncomfortable at first than you, when you first start out. But it's okay. It's okay if your stomach growls. It's a feeling that you're basically your body is now digested the food and it can go on about doing other things, repair, mending, and so forth. Um, you feel lighter on your feet. You start to appreciate that you feel different. You don't feel bad. You actually feel better, and, and it's actually a good thing. And then you're able to tolerate a little bit more. And so ultimately, that's how people will get their body mass index down is that they keep lowering it little by little by little. They keep doing their training, training little by little to be uncomfortable to the point where they're comfortable being and eating healthy and actually start to enjoy it. You start to enjoy how you feel after intervals. You, you feel good that you could run faster. You could run, you know, uh, tolerate more. You find out that it's not as bad as you thought it was. It gets easier as you go, and that's exactly the same way as running. Um, It's just hard to talk yourself into being uncomfortable at first. 
we have this mindset that as we become older, we should become more comfortable, more sedentary, more cushioned, so to speak. Um, but that's not going to do anybody any good. I'll even go as far to say that if you're in a family and you want to become plant-based, um, they ought to be able to hang with you one day a week. Um, I don't care if they're a carnivore or what they are, they ought to be able to eat plant-based one day a week. Take one for the team, so to speak. I want you to do this with me. I want you to support me for one day of the week. And so that day of the week, you have a cheerleading session. And that day, everybody eats, and then they can do what they want, and you go on about your business. But I think that it's not too, um, too much to ask for people that are um, in your household and you're trying to be healthy. Chances are they need to be more healthy as well, that one day a week, this is how we're going to do it. And I think that's a great way to start uh, with their intervals, so to speak. So plant-based eating intervals uh, one day a week. Um, it could be breakfast, you know, lunch, but most people can do breakfast and lunch plant-based, so that's, that's being pretty wimpy about it. But you know you can do breakfast and lunch, and that's not, um, that's not too uncomfortable. It's dinner, it's snack time, it's going out with friends, that's when it's uncomfortable. So do that day, uh, one day a week, and then um, take note of it. Say how you did, and then do it again, uh, and add more days onto it, or do it differently. Um, you know, look at different foods that you need to be adding in, look at more raw, look at more fruits, uh, look at a variety of different vegetables, so, you know, start making yourself a little bit nutritionally uncomfortable so that you can progress your, your diet as well. The other thing that happens, if you have a plant-based meal, chances are the rest of your family aren't going to want the, the leftovers, so you have leftovers for the next night, so that's one night you don't have to cook for yourself, so it all works out. I think we've been tricked into thinking that uh, we're all going to get high blood pressure and we need to take medications and there's not a darn thing we can do about it. There very much is. I think we've all been tricked into thinking that we need to be comfortable at all moments of our life and to not be comfortable is the end of the world. Um, you know, it goes on to people not going outside. They're living captive in their own house, not getting any fresh air, not seeing the sun, not getting any activity. Uh, it's like being incarcerated by choice. Um, so for your mentation, um, you know, choose, choose wisely. Choose to get outside. Choose to get strong. Choose to start getting a little bit uncomfortable. And you'll be surprised just how good you feel and how much confidence that gives you in every aspect of your life that you can do a little bit more than you think you can. If you want some guidance on any of this, I'd love to help you. Our team is very uh, well um, versed in getting people off their medications and getting people moving, getting uh, niggles sorted out. Um, hurt myself in a number of ways over the years, so I'm pretty good at sorting these things out. So go on over to our website, drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y.com, and find out how you can join the practice. Uh, you can email me at jamie, J-A-M-I, at drdelaney.com and ask a question. Share this with your friends. Give us a five-star review. If you like this podcast and you listen regularly, it's been free for 448 episodes. I intended to keep it that way. We might have a few 
uh, products along the way that we're, we're supporting, but, but I'm not uh, charging people to listen to this podcast. I just ask that you share it. We're almost to a million downloads since I've been doing that, so share this podcast with your friend. Friends, share this with people. The bigger the village is, the, the stronger that we are. So uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you all for listening uh, as usual. Talk to you again next week.